Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding roads that lead around the Delmarva Peninsula. Delmarva is an area in the United States on the East Coast that covers the state of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the northeast of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Today will be the second part of an episode that I released a couple of weeks ago. There are three separate stories with the first being covered in the last episode. I will be covering the other two today with some information about trying to keep ourselves safe at hospitals. It's not necessary that you actually listen to these in order as the stories themselves can stand alone. However, there were some connections in location between all three. And two of them actually happened very close together, and that's what I'll be um, covering today. But just to give a brief overview, um, these stories or cases all took place um, at medical facilities, with all three of them having the same medical facility in common. In the one that I covered last week, there were two facilities involved, um, so that is a little different, but today's will also include the hospital um, that was involved in last in the last episode. If you would like to get a better overview of, I guess you would say the logistics of hospitals and medical care facilities in the area of Sussex County, Delaware, you will want to go back and listen to the first episode um, to get a better understanding of that and how it can affect patients and their decisions on where to seek treatment. Um, There are some great distances between hospitals, so if you have to go to one, it's not necessarily a choice of where to go. It's what's the closest to you. Um, Whereas in some cases, especially if you live in a larger city or an area with more hospitals, you may have that choice that if you prefer to go to one, that's available to you. Also to share a little bit of personal information. Um, I know many of the returning listeners know that I lost a brother in a car accident earlier this year, and there were some other tragedies in my family. Um, To give a couple of, I I don't necessarily want to say updates, but my brother-in-law did have to return to the hospital um, for quite a while, um, but he is back out. He was actually, ironically or coincidentally, and transferred to the hospital that I'll be talking about today. Um, and I found out earlier today that in the early morning hours that our family did lose another family member in a car accident. Um, you know, um, with car accidents or anything sudden like that, I, it's just hard to explain the feeling when you get that news. And admittedly, I, you know, didn't see this person that often, um, but still, he was young. His he had siblings. His parents, you know, just please keep those members of my family in your thoughts, um, because I just cannot imagine 
what they're going through. It just makes me want to hug my kids a little bit tighter, keep them a little bit closer. Um, they're still in their teens, but you know, with one just becoming a teen and, you know, it's, it's just hard to imagine. So, um, it's another reminder that life can change in just a blink of an eye. And I contemplated not doing the episode um, right now, but at the same time, I thought about the people involved in the stories that I'll be covering, and you know, their stories need to be told. They, these are things that I'll be discussing today that should not have happened, and with one of the stories being about a mother, it just kind of touches home a little bit more. So before I do get started, there are just a couple of things that I want to go over. Um, I just briefly touched on this last week or last episode as well, that you know, just in order to cover all bases and protect myself and those involved, that these are cases that have taken place. Um, any you know, litigation um, has you know, not been publicly um, released. Um, in the last episode, there was some information um, about litigation settlements and compensation. But you know, all of the medical professionals um, that are out there, most you know, give one hundred percent, even one hundred and ten percent you know, working long hours, putting themselves in harm's way um, when working with patients that may have infectious diseases, you know, on their feet for hours and hours at a time to take care of patients. And everybody's human and things do happen. So I do want to express the gratitude for all of those out there who put everything that they can into taking care of patients and in today's story, I just hope that there were some lessons learned that helped make things safer for patients in the future so that it didn't leave a negative connotation, you know, on the medical profession or those particular um, medical facilities. Um, I don't want it to sound like I'm looking at this medical facility specifically, but I did start out remembering um, when this first story that I'll go over today happened, and in researching that one, I found the other two. So you know, I wasn't specifically looking at doing, um, you know, two episodes with three different cases, but I did find them in my research and did want the, you know, the patient's story to be told and not forgotten. But I don't want it to seem like I'm placing blame on any. One in particular in regards to these cases, and I do just hope that lessons were learned to help keep everyone safer. I will leave the links to my sources in the description of the episode. Also, if you did want to support the podcast, there are links to a PayPal or Buy Me a Coffee in the description as well. I do have the link to my Facebook group for this podcast as well, even though. My Facebook was hacked, or at least was attempted to be hacked. I keep getting um, notifications that someone's trying to reset my password, but I've had this Facebook account for like 14 years, 
and don't necessarily want to give it up. You know, it's my, my group or podcast account is all linked to my primary. Um, so unfortunately though, if I do have to close it out, I will let everybody know, um, you know, so that, you know, I can continue having, um, that ability to connect or speak with listeners, um, through that platform. Hopefully it won't come to that. I'm trying everything I can to make sure that it doesn't, but no guarantees. With that being said, let's get into today's episode. When a parent takes their child to the hospital, there are expectations that we have. No matter how old our child is, whether they be an infant, toddler, or a teenager, we all have concerns about you know, the treatment they may be provided, or even worse in some cases, that their illness or diagnosis may be critical and someone may be in for a long haul on caring for the child and making sure that they are safe. There are things that we might expect to encounter, especially if there is bad news about a child's diagnosis. But something that we would not expect is for our child to die when it was 100% preventable and for the lack of one little piece of metal that our child would die. However, this was the situation that the Atkins family were placed into in 2011. And I did use the Cape Gazette as my resource for a lot of the information. And I just always like to give a shout out to them as I find their coverage to be the most extensive and really get a lot of information from them. When Christina's mother took her to the hospital that day, she could have never imagined an outcome like the one that she had. Her daughter, Christina, had been feeling unwell in the previous um, weeks, and she had recently gotten over a urinary tract infection. She had been on some antibiotics and been out of school for a couple of days, but then did go back. However, one day, Christina's mother, Bonnie, got a call from the school nurse, and they were saying that Christina was sick, that she was lethargic and had a fever, and they suggested taking her to the hospital. And probably, um, you know, looking at how she'd been ill recently, I have to wonder if her mother thought that, you know, maybe the urinary tract infection hadn't completely gone away, um, or maybe it might have led to another infection, you know, things like that. But I think when most people hear urinary tract infection, for the most part, we don't think of it being an a very serious infection because it is relatively common, but it can be a serious infection. It can lead to other infections. And one of the reasons that I, you know, why this case, um, I remembered it is my father had a urinary tract infection that led to other infections and then eventually to a hospitalization of about a week with continuing care for another couple of weeks. So it can become very serious. And even though some may think of it as kind of a common, not that serious infection, 
it can be very serious. Um, so just because something is, you know, kind of more common, it doesn't mean that it makes it any less dangerous. Now, given the type of infection that she had had, um, when she got to the hospital, she was asked to give a urine sample. Um, you know, by then, Christina was feeling extremely ill. And with some difficulty, she did go into the bathroom and try to provide an, the sample. So this is something we've all probably done before, at least once in our lives, and don't really think anything of it when we enter that restroom. But something very unexpected happened. Christina started having difficulty breathing while she was in there. I know that at least in the hospital rooms that I've stayed at, um, also when I've been a visitor in the hospital, a lot of times there will be some type of an alarm or emergency system in the bathroom. Um, the ones that I, I usually see are pull cords. I don't know if there are other types of alarm systems, but usually it's a cord that is very long that can be reached. So you know, even if you fall, the cord is long enough that someone can pull it to indicate that, you know, they're ill um, or that they need assistance. That cord, if there was one available, was never pulled um, because Christina didn't really have that opportunity. She sounded like she was having a very, very difficult time breathing. I say it sounded like because Christina's mother was not in the bathroom with her and Christina was not able to communicate, but her mother had stood at the door and could hear her struggling. So, of course, as soon as she started to hear this, she tried to get into the bathroom. She alerted people to, you know, try to get into the bathroom, but no one could get in. That little piece of metal I was talking about was the key. And in this case, could have literally been the key to saving Christina. The staff of the hospital, BB Medical Center, did not have that key either. However, her distress was so much that other people besides her mother um, could hear what she was going through. Hospital staff and personnel could hear her struggling to try to catch her breath. And all the while, Bonnie her mother was standing outside the door trying desperately to get to her daughter and to give her the help that she so desperately needed. She needed the hospital staff to get to her as quickly as possible, and they were hindered and stopped really by the fact that nobody knew where the key was. When afterwards the Atkins family filed a formal complaint against BB Hospital, they stated that, quote, BB's nursing staff and maintenance personnel had no access to the master key for the ER restroom and did not know where their master key was located, end quote. The staff desperately tried to get to her once they realized they didn't have the key. Finally, a security guard was able to get into the bathroom after approximately 10 minutes of Christina being in respiratory distress. Because of the severity of her situation after she was able to be accessed, 
she was flown to AI DuPont Hospital, which I've mentioned in previous episodes, which is a pretty renowned children's hospital um, about two hours to the north of where this took place. However, Christina was not to recover. After two days at AI DuPont, she passed away. I mentioned that it took about 10 minutes to find the key. However, BB denied many of the claims in the um, court documents that were filed against them and the complaints that were filed against them in this case. They did not see it as 10 minutes. They thought it was less than 10 minutes. And while the complaint said that Christina was unresponsive, um, there was some talk about BB saying that she was not unresponsive. Either way, a delay of any type of care can be detrimental to someone's health and even to their life. And I sincerely believe that if Christina had been able to be helped earlier, the outcome would have been so much different than it ended up being. Ultimately, Christina's cause of death was respiratory failure with sepsis and possibly toxic shock syndrome. That was listed as a contributing factor as far as the TSS or toxic shock syndrome. Now, you may be familiar with some of these terms such as sepsis and toxic shock, and these can be treated most of the time, um, but sometimes, you know, the treatment is quite extensive and can you know, be over a long period of time. I have had sepsis and it was absolutely horrible. Um, but after weeks of treatment, I did recover. So even though these infections are very severe, there is every chance that someone can recover from them. And if someone is young and healthy, like Christina seems to have been, other than this infection, the prognosis could have been a good prognosis. But we'll just never know that because she didn't have that chance. She had that chance taken away because a key was not available. Now, while Delaware Health and Social Services did actually find that the hospital was not in compliance um, with plans on how to access a locked bathroom um, where they could help patients in distress, BB still continued to deny this information. One of the responses by them, as per the Cape Gazette, was that, quote, BB says it is not responsible for persons and events beyond its control and asks that the complaint be dismissed, end quote. It is true that Christina had a serious illness, but again, these illnesses can be treated even with you know, having a long recovery or even possibly lasting effects. But also, Christina, again, was young and healthy, and it should have been something that with proper and prompt treatment that she could have been treated for. Now, one may also question what it would have been like if Christina had been in a restroom that could have been accessed in a very short period of time. So, you know, as soon as Bonnie heard her daughter struggling, that the staff could get in there almost immediately. 
but to hear that it was possibly up to 10 minutes, that is a very long time to have limited or no oxygen. And while we can't really say specifically how long exactly um, the time period was before they were able to access the bathroom and how much of that time as well that Christina was um, not getting enough oxygen, we'll never really know those exact answers. But I think, you know, at least as far as my thoughts about the case, that there's no way that not having a key there immediately did not impact the outcome of Christina's case. They didn't mention things that were beyond their control. And while one would not necessarily expect a teenager um, to collapse in a bathroom, there are some assumptions that should be made, I feel, when someone goes into a hospital, and that is that you never know when the need for immediate action will be required. And that includes possibly sometimes within a bathroom. During the subsequent investigation, the state found that even after this event, the hospital had many issues that still affected the daily care of their patients. In addition to what I've already discussed, a review of Christina's health records were extremely concerning. It was shown that Christina's vital signs were not recorded correctly. There was not any more extensive information given about that, you know, what specifically was not correct. But just as importantly, if not more so, there had been notes in the file that there was a negative screening result for sepsis. But upon further review, it was found that screening had never actually been done. Now, I apologize. I think I may have forgotten to mention Christina's age a few moments ago, but she was only 14. Now, sometimes the symptoms or baselines for screening for sepsis are different for those who are under 18. So Christina definitely fell into that category. There are then um, like little boxes or ways to check on the intake form or their file, whether or not they were screened for sepsis when a patient comes in. It was marked that Christina was negative. However, you know, again, one was not done because of her age. And if someone were to just quickly look at um, the report that said the screening was negative, one may have thought, okay, she doesn't have sepsis, but that was not the case. The nurse who prepared that said that she did not remember why she put that there. So while we cannot see the actual form um, in question, I do have to question myself if there was an option there for someone under 18. So just to you know mark something to say patient under 18, screening not performed, or even just a very brief not applicable. That way, it's clear that the screening had not been done. I'm sure that hospitals have hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of forms that they have to fill out. So I find it unusual if there you know, would not be a not applicable or you know, person under 18 
on the form as those preparing them should have, you know, previous experience with making those forms. One would have to question then if the vital statistics not being recorded properly and then also the wrong option um, being chosen on this form, how or if that could have contributed to Christina's case and her death. Would the person who was giving her the pup or the, you know, testing materials for the urine analysis, would they have approached it a little differently or taken her to a different bathroom if they thought it was a possibility that she had sepsis? We'll never really know what might have been done differently if, you know, there was more information or accurate information on those forms. So it, with not being able to determine how that may have affected her treatment, it just makes it all the more relevant in finding out why these forms and these statistics were not recorded properly. Besides the state, um, something called the Joint Commission um, did also do an investigation. Um, The Joint Commission is not related to any hospital. Um, or even to particular states, even though I'm sure that there's some communication between the state and the Joint Commission if deemed necessarily, or deemed necessary. Um, now, my mother did used to work at the hospital, and even though she worked in the cafeteria, they even had rules that they had to abide by um, and things that they had to do because the Joint Commission looked at every single aspect of a hospital. You know, my mother had certain requirements that she had to follow, like, um, and this was many years ago, but if she thought someone was a patient there, she couldn't, you know, serve them any food in case, you know, they were on a strict diet, things like that. Um, She also had to know CPR, um, you know, and emergency procedures just to, you know, make sure that they were following rules to keep everybody safe. So there were some inconsistencies with reporting on the hospital's actual status um, regarding the Joint Commission. When um, When they were actually done with their investigation, BB's status as being deemed accredited was removed. You know, this would not be, um, this would not say that they could not get that status back, but, you know, that meant that there were some things that BB needed to address to try to keep everybody safer. However, when asked about their status at times, um, members of the board of directors for the hospital said that their status was on hold, but that they were still accredited and had a good standing with the joint commission. Um, you know, the, some other of the same board members said that their status was just on hold while the investigation was being completed. Um, and this same board member also continued to say that the hospital does address any concerns or safety concerns quickly. So that's why I mentioned there were some inconsistencies with what the actual accreditation status was from the joint commission at that time. So I do just want to make that clear, again, to kind of cover all bases and protect myself um, in regards to 
you know, what the status actually was. One thing that was found, though, was that the bathroom where Christina was at the time of her respiratory failure, it was considered a public bathroom. So even though it was in the ER and it could be used by patients, in this case, given a urine sample, um, because it was considered public, there was no type of emergency system in place. Um, you know, looking back at what preceded these events in the restroom, she was asked by a nurse to give a sample. Now, just in my opinion, if that restroom could be used by any patient, especially after they've been seen by a nurse, you know, I think it should be a restroom that has those emergency systems in place, especially if it's a restroom that a staff member directs a patient to. The bathroom should have that alarm. However, if it's considered a public restroom, at least at that time, it was not required. But looking at this case in retrospect, it just kind of leaves me in awe that not every bathroom was equipped with some type of an emergency alarm or system. So I tried to think back um, in more recent visits to the hospital or other medical facilities if there are alarm systems. And I seem to recall, at least for um, my local hospital, that there are pull cords, at least in most of the restrooms that I've been in. But usually they are more into an area where, you know, testing is being done or patients might be seen in. So they might just be in those particular areas. So I haven't noticed that, you know, there's not an alarm in some of the bathrooms. But what I find concerning here is that if someone is coming into a hospital because they're ill or they need a test, you know, they, they might even go to the restroom just prior to having the test done. And if the restroom doesn't have that alarm system and they have some type of medical emergency, you know, they would be in there possibly without anybody knowing. We could also kind of ask ourselves, well, there are other public restrooms that don't have emergency alarm systems, but those are not in a hospital where, you know, by definition, Many people who go in there can be sick or having tests done to determine, you know, why they haven't been feeling well or to determine a progression of an illness. So even though this took place in 2011, about 12 years ago, you know, it does make me question why alarms were not in every bathroom when there's always the possibility a patient may um, you need to use that restroom. Now, an inspection was done in July of 2011, and this was a surprise inspection from the Delaware Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS. They wanted to examine the bathrooms at BB, and in this report, it found that two-thirds of the bathrooms did not meet the requirements for patient safety. These were details and events that were in the report filed by DHHS. One of the representatives doing the inspection went into a bathroom that was in the ER. This inspector then followed out a test, which probably would have been close 
to what many people would do when they go into the restroom. When you go into a public restroom, you immediately lock the door. I think it's almost like muscle memory. It's ingrained in us. So Christina, of course, would have locked the door when she went in. The inspector did lock the door and activated the alarm system at 9.03. By the time that 9.50 came around, there had still been no response to the alarm. What was found was that this was not anything that was being missed by the staff that was on duty on the floor at the time, but rather that the emergency alarm did not sound at the nurse's station at all. So even if staff had, you know, if they were at the station, if they were around, they would not have heard the alarm because it wasn't working at the nurse's station. It wasn't working anywhere else within the ER, so nobody would have heard that alarm. And none of the personnel would have been alerted that there was someone in need of assistance. Now, just as concerning, they also found that three other restrooms had the same issues where the emergency alarm was not working. There was also one restroom that was in an area of the hospital that was not used at all times of the day. It was in the cardiovascular wing of the hospital, and there was a restroom whose alarms did work, but everybody working in that department usually left around 5 p.m. However, access to that bathroom was available until 9 p.m., so that was about a four-hour period of time where someone may have entered that bathroom, and even if they experienced a medical emergency and pulled the alarm, there would have been no one there to hear it. So they would have been in a similar situation where no one would be able to access them because they didn't know that someone was in need. So after BB received the report, um, they actually made that restroom a staff restroom, so there was not the emergency um, alarm or alert systems that needed to be put in place there. So I'm just going to share my opinion right here in that, at least to me, it didn't really give a good look for BB. They didn't really get down to the heart of the issue and the fact that, again, in my opinion, there should have been alarms there at all times in all of the bathrooms, really to bring quick medical assistance, even if people were not working. So I think they just kind of swept that, you know, one restroom away by making it, you know, a staff restroom only. Um, this would inconvenience patients who were visiting that area during working hours. And, you know, if they were having medical issues to have to go, um, you know, to another part of that wing or of the building to use the restroom, that was just unnecessary in my opinion. I, you know, I would think that they would want to make sure that the patients had easy access to the restrooms as well as access to emergency care if they needed it. So by just changing the type of restroom really didn't help anybody in that case, in my opinion. Now, going back to the inspectors and getting to the restroom where Christina was um, at the time of her incident, 
well, just like some of the previous restrooms I've just mentioned, the inspector went into that bathroom that Christina was locked in. And in something that could be looked at as almost a positive is it took only two minutes and 27 seconds for a response. In response to the events of May 2011, when Christina was at the hospital, um, they had placed a box outside of the restroom that had the key in there um, so that no one would need to try to you know, just break in the door. They would just have to break the glass on the box in order to get to the key. So if someone heard that there was a struggle in there as well, not necessarily an alarm, anybody could you know, break that box and get the key out. So if this had been available when Christina was in the bathroom, they could have gotten to her much more quickly. Now, the reason I said that it was almost a positive is that two minutes and 27 seconds is still a lot of time for an emergency. When someone is struggling to breathe, every second can count. So, you know, I have to wonder that if maybe two things could have happened at this time. One is you know, that if there was no one available at the desk when the alarm went off, you know, it could have then taken them two minutes to realize that an alarm was sounding and, you know, the other 27 seconds to get over there and to break the glass and get into the bathroom. It could have also been that they were extremely busy and, you know, literally could not get away from the patient that they were with to get to the alarm. That's concerning in itself. But I also, I have a lot of empathy for any of the medical staff that is working in those situations. There are times where things are so busy and so active that there are multiple critical cases in at a time that doctors and nurses, you know, PAs, anyone working in there are stretched thin and maybe even too thin at times. So that even with the best alarm systems and the quickest responses possible, it can still sometimes be longer than we would like or even need because you know, there's not enough staff in there at the time. So, you know, again, I have a lot of empathy for those working in those situations as I'm sure they would love everything to be able to work 100% perfectly, to never have a time period where there's you know, multiple critical cases in at a time so that they can give each patient the time and the attention that they deserve. So two minutes and 27 seconds is a great improvement. Um, but at the same time, you know, a person who's struggling to breathe needs that air from that two minutes and 27 seconds. And trying to put myself in the nurse's or the doctor's shoes I know they would love to be able to get there in less than two minutes and 27 seconds, that they would love to just get there immediately, if at all possible. What was also found about this particular restroom is that the lock had been changed about a year or so previously, and that's where the situation took place with the key 
you know, it somehow never got back to the charge nurse nor security, you know, to have the master key to that bathroom or to have a master key that would open any of the rooms. The inspectors were very thorough and they did also note that at another um, restroom, it took nine minutes and 37 seconds. And at that point, when one inspector was in a restroom, um, an inspector that was working with him tracked down a security guard to bring the guard back to the restroom. It was noted in the report by the inspectors that this particular alarm was being worked on that day. So it just so happened that the inspectors got there on a day when an alarm in a restroom that was similar to where 14-year-old Christina had her respiratory failure, that the other restroom was not working, or the alarm in that restroom was not working properly either. However, by the end of the day, which was July 20th, 2011, um, the hospital had finished their repairs on this alarm, which had taken nine minutes and 37 seconds before an inspector went to find the security guard. So reportedly, it was up and working by the end of business that day. After the report, BB had to put in place a corrective plan to address the defects that the investigators had found. The plan set forth details on how alarms would be tested and how staff would be trained to react to these incidents. The hospital seemed quick to react to these corrections or defects in the report, and they stated that they were able to complete all of them by September 19th. Alarms were supposed to be inspected at least annually, as well as some may just be tested randomly throughout the year. The staff was also more equipped to deal with accessing a bathroom as the charge nurse would now have a master key, thank goodness, as well as the access boxes with the key that I mentioned before that were outside the bathrooms. And that's empowering for anybody who is with a patient, um, anybody visiting someone or someone who just hears a person in distress in the bathroom so that even if they're trying to get a guard or staff's attention, they can at least get the bathroom door open and you know, make it easier for whatever personnel is coming over to get in there. Now, after all investigation and the litigation against BB, um, the hospital and the parents of Christina Atkins settled for an undisclosed amount with Marcy Jack, who was vice president of quality safety and risk management for BB, saying that, quote, the parties have amicably resolved the case to everyone's mutual satisfaction, end quote. Now, this really just fell more than a little flat for me, maybe because in a case like this, there is really no satisfaction. And amicably, I kind of have to question that as well because I would love to say that I'm a person who wouldn't hold any animosity, but really, I don't think that I could use the term amicably and satisfaction in a case like this. Um, you know, when a 14-year-old needlessly died because no one knew where a key was, 
you know, I just, I, I just think that response was one of those responses that seems safe and not as sincere. Now, I do guess I should say for clarity that we don't know what the outcome would have been if the hospital could have accessed the bathroom you know, faster. Would Christina have been able to make a full recovery or a partial recovery or what would have happened? But what we do know is that any delay can cause a more negative outcome. And when looking at this one, at least in my opinion, it was a strong contributing factor. Now, if you were anything like me, this story may have made you angry. And you would just hope that with time and recognition of faults and safety, that BB, as well as any other public institution, especially those in medicine, would put safeguards in place to keep their patients as safe as possible. After you know, reviewing this case, I was hoping to end with you know, information that said that the hospitals, specifically BB, would have learned. But while reviewing this case, I came across something that, at least in my memory, received less coverage. I didn't hear about this case until looking at Christina's. Um, I think I had searched for some of the keywords such as BB hospital, death, maybe lawsuit, you know, just a couple different keywords um, where I was trying to find information. I think I used investigation as well, but I came across something that happened about or a little more than a year later. This took place on June 26th of 2012. A man by the name of Melvin Dillard Jr. had been experiencing symptoms that we would all consider concerning, I think. He was having chest pains. He reached out to emergency services and was taken to BB by ambulance. While doctors ran tests and examined Mr. Dillard, they said that he showed signs of, quote, consistent with an impending cardiac event, end quote. Now, I'm sure that if we heard a phrase like this and had been to the ER, um, you know, you would be more than a little concerned but the ER doctor just discharged him and told him to follow up with a cardiologist. So Mr. Dillard, having been brought to the hospital by an ambulance, was discharged and he did not immediately have a ride to take him home. He went to sit in the lobby and was working on getting a ride home, but he would never get to take that ride home. While sitting there in the emergency room at BB Hospital, um, also known as BB Medical Center, Mr. Dillard suffered that impending cardiac event and died. Now, you know, the description was an impending cardiac event. So impending could mean it could happen 10 minutes from now. It could happen 10 weeks or 10 months or even 10 years from now. But what we do know is he was experiencing very concerning symptoms and he went to the hospital like we're all told to do when we experience things like chest pain. But he sat there in the lobby of an emergency room 
after being told to just follow up with the cardiologist. And he sat there in that waiting room. And when he was found, rigor mortis had already set in. So that means he sat there in the lobby with no one noticing that this man had not moved in hours. Now, there are different things that can play into how long it takes for rigor mortis to set in. Um, It can set in to the extremities, you know, sooner than it gets to the core or the trunk of the body. Um, Temperature in the room, things like that will also play a part. But still, the fact that any rigor mortis had set in shows that you know, he he just was not getting the attention that I think someone should have given him. Was there a security guard who was walking around an area that saw him sitting there for, you know, just round after round of, you know, the guard going through the building? Was the person there who did the intake, you know, the, um, like the registrar, or I'm not sure what they're called at different hospitals, But the person at the desk in the waiting room, did they not see him sitting there waiting for hours and not think that there was something wrong? You know, we don't know if he had been back in the ER, you know, for an hour longer and maybe been hooked up to machines if they would have been able to save him. But what we do know is they discharged him without a ride home. They let him sit in the waiting room, knowing that there could potentially be a cardiac event. And to me, the fact that he was having chest pains indicated that that cardiac event was getting closer rather than it being like stable and not, you know, ready to occur more immediately. So he had those symptoms and they didn't even make sure that he had a ride home, that someone would be able to sit with him. Now, I can say that in the past 10 years, I have known two women who were discharged from an ER that died shortly afterwards in relation to, um, in my opinion, things that should have been addressed while they were at the ER, even though one of the women actually went to the ER, came back because she was still having difficulty. They sent her home for a second time and then... She unfortunately had a cardiac event and passed away some time after that. That was at a different hospital, but I think it does also show that, you know, if you go to the ER, it almost seems like, okay, well, you're not in immediate danger at this moment. You might be in danger. So we'll send you home and hope that you don't have. you know, like a serious emergency soon. I know that a lot of times in cases like this, we'll hear words such as protocol. And protocol can take away things that are more subjective, you know, like personal feelings, um, empathy, sympathy, things like that. With protocol, it creates things that are very objective or things that are kind of set in stone, hard facts, if you will. You might be able to create some type of flow chart for protocol that shows you exactly what you should do 
um, in each particular case. And a lot of times these can be very, very helpful. But we're talking about human beings here. And when you throw in human factors, sometimes those flowcharts don't, you know, really cover everything. Sometimes those protocols take into account insurance. Um, with not knowing whether or not insurance might cover a long-term stay or even just to stay for a couple of days, in my personal experience, even you know after these events, um, so more recently, it seems as though some hospitals are not willing to admit patients. And I'm not talking about specifically, you know, even since say 2020. Um, even before then, there were times where my doctor wanted me admitted, but they would not admit me. And in one case, I was told it was because it was a Friday evening and they weren't sure if insurance would cover it and my insurance company wasn't open. So that was basically it. Um, if they didn't know that it would be covered, the doctor in charge would not okay an admission. Um, so to me, that, that type of protocol takes away the human factor. I do realize that emergency rooms are not meant to be a doctor's office. So unfortunately, sometimes it is due to insurance or medical coverage as well, that people do go into emergency rooms and can be quickly discharged, um, but it's because they may not have that medical coverage to go see a general practitioner or primary care doctor on a regular basis. But ERs are for emergencies as well, which means you do get patients in there who may need to be admitted. And if there's you know, protocol in place that may prevent that because of concern of insurance coverage, well, I could probably go on about that for hours, and I don't want to, you know, kind of get into political um, ideas or anything in this case, but it just does make me wonder what things might have been like if the human factor had been um, followed more than just a set, you know, protocol where you know, like an intuition or the years of experience that a doctor may have and understand that a patient needs to be admitted, yet the protocol says no. And, you know, BB did state that protocol was followed in this case. So, you know, it just frustrates me that this poor man died alone in a waiting room and he was alone for so long. That just kind of tears at me to even imagine someone sitting in there and not having the help that they needed and for no one to notice him for hours. That just, you know, it. I can almost picture someone sitting there and it just tears me apart because, you know, someone goes into the hospital for for care and to be taken care of 
And Mr. Dillard did what he was supposed to do. He reached out to emergency services. He got to the hospital, but while protocol might dictate one thing, maybe that protocol could be changed to, you know, even just include that someone has a ride before you're sent out to, you know, the front of a building. And looking at a different hospital, so not this one, but I have seen a man actually get up to advocate for another patient because he didn't have a ride, but he was actually taken out and was sitting out in front of the hospital in a hospital wheelchair waiting for a ride. And another man got up um, and I just remember he had his phone out and he's like, they're not going to leave my man out there like that. And yeah, I mean, he was an elderly gentleman and he was outside by himself in a wheelchair. Um, and again, it was a hospital wheelchair. So, and that was pretty recently, that's been within the last year. So, you know, we, I think we, as patients of a hospital need to sometimes do that, need to stand up for, you know, others. I remember I, you know, I looked at the man in that case and I'm like, is he out there alone? You know, cause it's shocking. It is, um, to see someone out there in a wheelchair, um, with nobody accompanying them and they're waiting for a ride. So this is where I was hoping to be able to give tons and tons of advice on how to try to avoid these types of things at a hospital. But the problem is there's just so many incidents that you may not even think could ever happen at not only a hospital, but any other type of public building. Um, who would have thought that a teenager who was just going in to give a test sample would never, you know, never really survive that? Who would have thought that a man afterwards um, you know, from being discharged would die in the waiting room before being able to get a ride home? And if you go back to the previous um, episode of last week, I'm not going to give away too much in case someone's listening to these out of order, but the, you know, the series of events there could have easily been avoided, but something that no one would ever imagine happening to any patient, much less someone's own family members. When looking for statistics on accidents at hospitals, even when using the term accident, um, most of the things um, and articles that came up were about infections. Um, that really is the number one, um, I don't want to say killer of patients, but it is really the most common event when going into the hospital. If you've ever had surgery, um, you probably had to sign some long disclaimer that gives a whole lot of possible, um, you know, possibilities, I guess, um, that could happen while having or after you've had surgery. An infection, you know, ranks the highest, really. And that's not always something that, you know, a doctor or nurse can prevent. They will do everything that they can, you know, by you know, washing their hands, um, 
using sterile gloves, things like that. But there are germs and microbes and things all around us. And sometimes things do get infected. Um, but after that, there were a whole list of other types of things that can happen at a hospital, such as medical, I'm sorry, medicine um, given incorrectly or the wrong medicine being given. So that can range anywhere from the wrong dose to someone actually giving the wrong type of medication. There can be allergic reactions if you're given a medicine that you've never received before. And I'm sure that happens quite a bit. Um, there can be a reaction to even anesthesia if you've never had surgery before. You may not even be aware that you have that um, reaction to anesthesia. So the list could go on and on about things like that. And I'm sure we've all heard the horror stories about, um, you know, having a sponge or scissors or clamps or something left inside a patient um, after surgery. And those are actually considered pretty common. Falls then are also next on the list of things that can occur. And I will admit from personal experience, I've made that mistake um, where it was, you know, going back to where nurses and doctors can be spread very thin, but I was admitted at this time. So I was on the floor, not in an ER, but I was considered a fall risk. And I had called like an hour earlier to go to the bathroom. And so finally I did get up and within like two steps of trying to get to the bathroom, which was really close. I really thought that with the help of a cane, I could make it, but I didn't. And I fell and, um, being in the floor like that, I was away from my call bell, but I was able to see feet kind of going by, which, um, if you listen to the previous episode, there was something similar I mentioned, but when I saw someone walk by, I called for, and I ended up with like the whole team in there because they thought maybe I had passed out when I fell. I'm like, no, it wasn't like passing out. I just fell. Um, so falling is one of the biggest risks outside of, I would say, the medical activity and things related to the medical activity. Um, so if you're in the hospital and you're told not to get up, that you need assistance, I will tell you from personal experience, wait for that assistance to come. Um, but it may also say that we need more nurses because, you know, like an hour is a long time to wait. Um, so I can see both sides there and being from a small town too, I knew one of the people who came in, um, after I fell and I'd had her as a nurse once before and, you know, she was, she was very concerned um, we weren't even close friends or anything, but we knew each other well enough. And um, there was another incident when I, when she'd been my nurse before where, you know, it, I could see the concern in her face, like more than, you know, any nurse or doctor would give to a patient who fell. 
you know, having someone in there that, you know, just seeing their eyes get up, you know, I could tell that she was upset and I'm like, okay, I definitely will not be getting up again because I didn't want to scare a nurse, you know, with concern that what if she did pass out? So sorry, going off on a little bit of a tangent there, but it was definitely something that I have the personal experience with. And I can say, yeah, if, if you're at fall risk, don't try to get up, but I don't know of any other way or any way to look at every potential thing that can happen in a hospital. What I can say just from observing medical facilities are a few different things. One is to know where the emergency exits are. Um, if you are mobile and there is an emergency that arises, such as an evacuation, at least you know where to go and make sure that you do follow um, the nurses and doctors lead or any of the staff that is working at the hospital as they do have plans that will help get all of the patients out of a building in cases of emergency. And if we as patients or visitors do not follow those procedures, then that could cause um, you know, someone basically to be looking for us or our loved one um, and putting themselves in potential danger if we've left the building without letting someone know. Don't be afraid to be an advocate for yourself either. Question things, ask to talk to someone else. Um, and this is just what my insurance company told me um, when that time when I you know, was basically told that they didn't have a reason to admit me and my doctor, you know, wanted me to be admitted. You know, she told me, at least for my insurance, to ask them to keep me overnight um, until they could speak with someone at the insurance, um, that there's usually like a short stay area where many hospitals will place a patient. But even with that, there may be times where that area is, you know, is full. Um, they may not have any beds available. So that's not even foolproof. Make sure that you do have a ride available and that they are there before you go out into a rating room if the hospital will allow it. You know, let them know that you feel safer. Um, waiting for your ride to get there before you actually, you know, leave the room in the ER unless that bed is desperately needed for someone. Um, this will make sure that you're under observation by someone until your ride is there. Also, now that we're at a time where everybody has, or I guess I should say almost everybody has a cell phone I would make sure that you have that on you at all times so that if something does happen to occur when you don't have access to a call bell or an alarm system, that you do have a way to communicate and get in touch with somebody. Also, hospitals will have social workers that can help you set up aftercare as well, because even once you leave the hospital, you can be at risk for other things too, whether it be you know, having to change a bandage, having to administer your own medication, um, depending on the circumstance. You, know, you may have a nurse come in, you may have a physical therapist come in or occupational therapist. 
um, to follow up with. But make sure all of that care is coordinated before you leave the hospital because it's going to be a stressful enough experience um, to then have to get home and make, you know, dozens of phone calls to try to get things set up adds more stress and can also add more time um, for, you know, when you can actually start receiving that care. And especially in cases of wounds or aftercare and administration of certain medicines at home, having a you know, nurse come in or someone who can help you with that um, at the house um, once released can be of you know, not only more professional care um, being available to you, but it may also just take that load off yourself and from those um, you know, whether they be your family or friends that are helping to take care of you, you know, it helps take that off of their shoulders by having a nurse or occupational therapist come in. And again, I know that a lot of these things are determined by what type of insurance you have and how much they will cover. So, you know, I, I wish that I could say that everybody could just ask to have that nurse or physical therapist come in you know, for a certain amount of time and that it's automatically done. But unfortunately, we see that's not happening. Um, make sure that we follow our doctor's advice. And when dealing with things such as infection, you know, to make sure that you are washing your hands frequently, that you're using gloves when necessary. Um, I know I've mentioned I do have a chronic illness and I am immunocompromised. So I have like gloves. I have, um, they're not sterile gloves, but for me as well, like when I'm touching things, it gives me that extra layer of protection. So if, you know, I think I'm going to be coming into contact with something that may potentially have some germs or bacteria or something, I make sure I have the gloves on and then still wash my hands like very thoroughly afterwards. Um, so that's just the layer of protection so that it's not on my, my hands that I'm not coming into contact with something potentially. The access to different resources can vary based on a number of different factors. So even living in say the same town or same neighborhood, different people will still have different access because of, you know, healthcare coverage and other factors um, that play into medical care. So, you know, it's hard to give like a broad overview to say that, you know, do this or do that in regards to um, care at the hospital or care at home, because it can vary person by person, location by location, insurance coverage by insurance coverage. And that's where I think, you know, being your own advocate really does help. Um, you know, when you go into a hospital, make sure you have a list of questions that you have when you go in. Um, and then once you find out more information, you know, if you're given a diagnosis or if you know you have to stay a while or have a surgery, make sure you're writing everything down because you know, in the spur of a moment, if a doctor asks, do you have any other questions? 
you might say, yes, I did. I had three, but I can't remember two of them. If you have it written down, you know, you can make sure that you'll never forget what the question is. And if someone says that they can't answer that question, try to find out who can, or is it because they have to wait until they get, you know, a test back or they have to um, get approval from insurance back, make sure that you're following up with that. And then just in terms of general hospital safety, and I think this pertains anywhere, is make sure that you follow warning signs. So, you know, if you see wet floor signs, something like that, um, that you're following them and not walking in that area to avoid slips and falls. And also as far as being your own advocate as well, if you know that you're not able to have someone appointed, um, I actually had a very good conversation with someone recently um, who works for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. That's um, that's an illness that my sister had. Um, she passed away more than 10 years ago from complications from that. And my illness is in the same family as her illness. But I talked to someone from there and she said once she got her diagnosis, she kind of set up her own support system so that there were people who knew what she was going through, what she needed, um, so that if she was ever in you know, a situation where she needed someone they knew exactly what they needed to do. It's having that extra set of eyes, hands, ears that can work to help you. And it was also good to have as that support system. So when she needed assistance, even on a daily basis, um, that she had that available. So having that you know, second person or another person available to advocate with you and for you, that can help keep you safer as well you know, because they might be that third um, person objective, um, you know, who is looking at things from the outside and sees things that we as the patient might miss. And then the medical professionals, you know, they get into a routine, they might miss something. Um, so having that third person or another set of eyes and ears can help as well. My thoughts do go out to Christina's family, Mr. Dillard's family, um, and Mrs. Bailey's family from last episode. Um, personally, some of the responses from BB were to me less than adequate. You know, they put in almost like what I would call a high five program that would recognize uh, people if they pointed out. Um, you know, possible improvements or dangers that were in the workplace, you know, because of for the the person reporting it, it would be from their workplace. It it just kind of seemed like a lackluster reward was given. You know, they got their picture up on the wall. Um, you know, in terms of recognition for someone who may have pointed out a danger that could help patients. Um, it at the same, at, you know, at the same time did two things to me, at least it kind of belittled the severity of the situation. Cause it was like, oh, well, they get a little, you know, picture up on the wall. They get this. It was to me, it almost sounded like an employee of the month situation where, 
you know, I don't mean to make it sound like being awarded employee of the month is not important, but at the same time, it was like, okay, this could be something that could help improve safety for a number of patients. So it kind of, to me, minimized the severity of what had taken place. Um, it, you know, the other side of that is it almost seemed like to me they they were responding in a way where it looked like they were trying to make the improvements. It was kind of a um, a visual for people to see. Um, so again, to me, it was just kind of a lackluster response. So um, that's where I'm going to be ending today's episode. Um, just a little bit as well. You know, I did mention, as I have before, that I do have a chronic illness and I would love to be able to get a new episode out every week. But I know that at times it's a struggle to get them out every two to three weeks, even at times. I really do love doing the podcast. Um, I learn a lot about my area, about its history, about things that have impacted um, the region. So, you know, I'm kind of disappointed in myself when I don't get to get these episodes out more quickly. I had really most of this already written. So, you know, I, I wanted to have this out earlier. So I apologize. I just hope that at times everyone can be a little patient if it does take a little bit longer um, than, you know, two or three weeks to get an episode out. Um, my goal has always been to try to get two or three episodes ahead so that if something happens where I can't record, you know, I can then upload another episode. But unfortunately, I've never been able to get to that point um, where I'm a couple of episodes ahead. And I have found like, in you know, looking at resources for podcasters, one of the suggestions is to make sure even before you publish your first one, to have two or three episodes ahead. So I wish I had seen that um, before and thought that far ahead as well. So, you know, I just did want to let everybody know that it is important for me as well to learn about my region's history and things that have helped shaped the air, shape the area. Um, so, you know, I do want to get these out as quickly as I can. I just apologize if they're not always as on time as I wish they were. So thank you very much for your patience on that. Um, if you have any suggestions about episodes, please um, send me a message. Usually Messenger, Facebook Messenger is the quickest way to get me. And if for any reason, again, I do have to kind of shut down the Facebook because um, someone's trying to get in, I will update that on the next episode. But my email is also in there as well. So it's in the links in the description of the episode. So, um, you know, if you have any suggestions, drop me a line there. Thank you. And I will talk to you as soon as I can. Bye.